Bam 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 Hi everyone, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. That's Lisa, I'm Misty, and this is the podcast where we try to do the whole intro in one breath, and we rate and review and read a popular self-help book, and we give you all the main points. <laughs> I'm just amazed. Keep going. Don't stop. We give you all the main points of the book and how we feel about it. If you love what you're hearing, go buy the book, dive deeper in, get all those deets. If you hate it, you're welcome. We just saved you time, money, energy. The point is, we are reading the book so that you don't have to, and you can get all that life-altering self-help perspective shifting advice that you've been craving with no effort on your part. You're welcome. Welcome. Jesus, that was a lot. It is a lot. I feel like it's accurate. Listen, if you're not liking what you're hearing now, shut it off. Delete the just app. Just do a quick it's forward fine. 30, forward 15. Oh, I just meant like that's the vibe of the whole podcast. Oh, it is. <laughs> hey, Misty. Hi. What have you prepared for us, Lisa? Well, as I mentioned in last week's episode, I gave a little teaser that I read. My mom sent it to me. And thank you, Linda. And I read Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life by Edith Hall. It's funny. This whole time I thought this book was written by Aristotle. <laughs> it's by a woman named Edith. Well, Aristotle wrote many, many, many books. pieces. Yeah. And uh, he wrote in Greek, and I mm-hmm. cannot read that. So that Well, was... that's your fault. Sure. So um, let me tell you a little bit about Edith Hall. Please. Edith Hall, born in 1959, is a British scholar of classics, specializing sorry, I understand in ancient Greek literature and cultural history. Sav, are you hearing this? And a professor in the Department of Classics and, uh, classics and the Center for Hellenic Studies at King's College, London. It's like she's having an out-of-body experience. From 2006 until 2011, she held a chair at Royal Holloway, University of London, where she founded and directed the Center for Reception of Greece and Rome until November 2011. Are you speaking in? She resigned of a dispute regarding funding for classics after leading a public campaign, which was successful to prevent cuts to or the closure of the Royal Holloway Classics Department. What? She also co-founded and is consultant director of the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama at Oxford University, chairman of the Gilbert Murray Trust, and judge on the Stephen Spender Prize for Poetry Translation. Mm, Can't make it out. Her prize-winning doctoral thesis was awarded at Oxford. In 2012, she was awarded a Humboldt Research Prize to study ancient Greek theatre in the Black Sea, and in 2014, she was elected to the Academy of Europe. She lives in Cambridgeshire. Edith Hall studied for a Bachelor of Arts degree in Classics and Modern Languages after winning a major scholarship to Wadham College, Oxford. She was awarded with first-class honours in 1982 and a Doctor of Philosophy degree at St. Hugh's College, Oxford, awarded in 1988. Bored. She was Leverholm Chair of Greek Cultural History at the Durham University, Fellow of Somerville College, Oxford, and Visiting Chairs at several North American institutions. That's Edith Hall. So she's real stupid. I love that part of her biography is she once got into this legal dispute over what, not having enough funding for glasses? It wasn't illegal. It was like a public campaign, which was, as you can imagine, as British. Very, very uppity. Yeah, and very like no, no. Um, <laughs> here are the prices. Uh, it was in, uh, pr- published in 2018. Is this a New York Times bestseller? I that I wanted to look up and forgot. Great. I'm gonna say 
Yes. It's popular. It's a very popular book. It sounds like it. The Kindle is $13.99. The paperback is $17. The hardcover is $20.38. And the Audible is $24.50, narrated by Sean Thomas, oh, oh. a young Welsh lass. So it's wit- it, it's written by a woman, <laughs> narrated <laughs> by a man. <laughs> a Welsh lass. Uh, oh. <laughs> I don't know why I thought you said lad. Thank you. <laughs> Should we just cut that out? Narrated by another woman. <laughs> so Guys, sorry. there are some chapters. Introduction, uh, chapter one, happiness. Uh, I'll just read you the 10 chapters. Great. Happiness, potential, decisions, communication, self-knowledge, intentions, love, community, leisure, and morality. Then there's some acknowledgments, glossary, further reading notes, and an index. Great. I am only covering the first four chapters. Okay. Any particular reason? This book is like a college-level textbook because she is a hunting college professor. Ah. So it's it's hard to read. It's thick. It's dense. thick and dense. And like, listen, Aristotle is super smart. He you might have heard of him. Um and no idea who Edith he is. Hall, even more smart, and you might have heard of her. But like he 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 did a great job of enumerating his ideas through the ancient Greek classics, which at his time were current day. And um Missy's already yawning. It's a great off to a great start. <laughs> um and then she uh not only it gives the examples that he uses, but then also current day examples. So it's it's hard to not understand, but it's very thorough. Okay. Got it. Um, exhaustively so. Exhaustively thorough. So the introduction is long and was its own chapter and textbook. Great. Um, it's about introducing Aristotle and defining happiness and how most books refer to an objective well-being definition. Mm. And studies even set up by governments to measure the happiness of its citizens and like the United Nations has World Happiness Day, and it's yeah. all measuring this well-being. And then the other side of this are philosophers who reject this idea and instead understand happiness subjectively. Mm-hmm. And so to them, happiness is not akin to well-being, and she, I'm quoting her here, but to contentment or felicity. And according to this view, no onlooker can know if somebody is happy or not. And it is possible that the most outwardly boisterous person might be suffering from deep melancholy. Yeah, that's any comedian in Hollywood. Thank you. This subjective happiness can be described but not measured. And she mentioned how Marie Antoinette, everybody felt like she was living a beautiful life, but she couldn't be happy when like two of her children died in infancy, right? Right. So, um, uh, Aristotle was the first philosopher to inquire into this second kind of subjective happiness. Hmm. He developed a sophisticated, humane program for becoming a happy person, she says, and it remains valid to this day. Aristotelian, Aristotelian, I'm assuming is how you say it, Aristotle, Aristotelian ethics encompass everything modern thinkers associate with subjective happiness, which includes self-realization, finding a meaning, and the flow of creative involvement with life or positive emotion. (laughs) said it sounds a lot like self-help. This was in the self-help section. Okay. On Amazon. Wow. She says that few philosophers, mystics, psychologists, or sociologists have done much more than restate his fundamental perceptions. But he stated them first, better, more clearly, and in a more holistic way than anyone subsequently. Damn. I said Edith Hall bringing out that Oxford's burn. That is what we call first to market, everybody. Thank you. And he did it before Christ. Um What is happiness then? (laughs) Modern philosophers come at subjective happiness from three different directions. 
One, from psychology, the opposite of depression or a positive mood. Two, hedonism, the idea that happiness is defined by the total proportion of our lives we spend enjoying ourselves, experiencing pleasure, or feeling delight and ecstasy. Or three, a philosophical approach, analyze and modifying your own ambitions, behavior, and responses to the world. This is directly from Aristotle. Mm. So here's the main point of this introduction. Aristotle believed that if you train yourself to be good by working on your virtues and controlling your vices, you will discover that a happy state of mind comes from habitually doing the right thing. Oh. Mm-hmm. That I just I just think of how willpower is a muscle, and if you use it all the time, it's going to fatigue. So there, Aristotle. There you go. Um, I'm just going to read from you uh, for you from the introduction on page 15, just a little bit about Aristotle. Great, from a woman who probably knows him better than anyone. Mm. Although he is often characterized as an austere, uncompromising, and arduous writer, do you want me to do it in a British accent? Yes. No, her eyes said mm-hmm. no, but mm-hmm. do it like Marge. Nope. Oh, gosh. There are dozens of moments in Aristotle's surviving works which come suddenly and compellingly to life. I'll leave that there. <laughs> he is quietly humorous and observes human foibles with a real twinkle in his eye. Foibles is a funny word. Mm-hmm. At a party drinking with philosophers, for example, he encountered a man who comically repeated the maxims of Empedocles, mm-hmm. one of the more obscure Greek thinkers who expressed his views in lengthy hexameter poems. Aristotle knew many poets personally and found that they tended to be obsessed with their own literary creations, adoring them as parents adore their children. He loved anecdotes illustrating harmless human eccentricity. eccentricity. Nope. Eccentricity. Thank you. For example, the story of a man in Byzantium who became an expert weather forecaster by observing the northerly or southerly I can't say I can't say words. Observing the northerly or southerly walking directions of his pet hedgehogs. No. <laughs> or the or the toper from Syracuse who kept the eggs his chickens laid warm until they hatched by sitting over them and partying with a contentious supply of wine. Mm. He cared about relationship to his body. He believed profoundly that sex, food, and wine enjoyed in constructive ways with people we love offer crucial clues to human happiness. He was fascinated by the sensation of taste, by food and cooking. He knew what people grew to eat in domestic gardens. He enjoyed a rub down and a warm bath at the gymnasium. Ooh, a rub down. Thank you. The amount he knew about music and indeed about the practicalities of learning instruments suggests that this was an important aspect of his life. So this is him. That's Aristotle. Wow. He sounds effervescent. Thank you. Um, She includes a map of all the places that he lived. Oh, that's cool. Oh, he lived in Lesbos. Mm-hmm. And his timelines and all the dates That's, are BC. Wow, cool. Uh huh. He was born in 384 BC, and um, he died in 322. Wow. So, um, so sixty something. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. So, do 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 do. Oh, I do need to read a note, a caveat of sorts. <gasps> Believe it or not, a woman has written a caveat <laughs> in this book. <laughs> In any attempt to revive Aristotelian philosophy, especially for a woman, there is the contentious issue of his prejudice as a prosperous ancient patriarch and householder towards women and slaves. 
In the first book of politics, he notoriously defends slavery, and at least in the case of Greeks enslaving non-Greeks, and states unequivocally that women are cerebrally inferior to men. Mm -mm. I have not dwelled on the actually extremely infrequent passages where he reveals his error in thinking that women or non-Greek slaves were not born with the same intellectual potential as Greek men. Instead, I stress Aristotle's consistency in arguing that all opinions must always be open to revision. Okay. That's our caveat. Okay. Chapter one, happiness. So according to Aristotle, the ultimate goal of human life is simply happiness, which means finding a purpose in order to realize your potential and working on your behavior to become the best version of yourself. Yeah. I'm down with that. He says everyone can decide to be happy. Do you think he felt that was true for his slaves? No. That they could decide to be happy? Uh, No. Okay. According to uh, Edith Hall, she says even Thomas Jefferson was immersed in Aristotelian philosophy with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in our Declaration of Independence. Mm. And if you look at many uh, of our founding fathers and and early state constitutions, Mm -hmm. happiness is mentioned mentioned frequently. So many of those people were steeped in Aristotelian philosophy. What if I'm saying Aristotelian wrong? Do you think it's Aristotelian? Aristotelian. 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 Love it. I love all of them. I say yes. Aristotle wrote the first books on, quote, how should I act, which some claim are the very first self-help books written. They really sound like they are. I remember when I was doing my research on the history of self-help, they mentioned these books. Amazing. Living well, quote, living well means practicing virtue ethics or more simply doing the right thing. There are a few hard and fast rules, and the intention is to always improve our lives and direct them towards well-being. But the ethical dimension of each decision will be different and require different analysis and responsive action. For which I said, thank you. Thank you. Not everybody gets to apply one Yeah, rule. you can't be like, here's a blanket statement. It's Goodbye. It's just that simple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, example, two employees may steal cash from the register, but one may feed her kids repaying at the end of every month, and the other has a drug habit. Aristotle thought that general principles are important, but without taking into account the specific circumstances, general principles can often be misleading. And I said, the secret. Well, and just the United States judicial system. Let's go. Thank you. Let's keep going. He thinks people who repress their emotions too much are not able to achieve goals more than people who don't exercise moral reasoning powers. Meaning, if you repress your emotions, you are just like somebody who doesn't have moral reasoning powers. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. The relationship between emotion and reason is not one of polarity, but he said, like the convex and concave sides of a curve. Oh. Mm -hmm. So wait, the more emotionally in touch you are, the more successful you can be? Well, he's saying that emotion and reason are symbiotic. You can't have one without the other. Wow. Mm -hmm. Also, many people mistake certain kinds of good things, wealth or pleasure or fame, for the type of constructive good things he's really talking about. Mm. So the problem with these goals, wealth, pleasure, and fame, is that they can be radically affected by chance, whereas misfortune doesn't damage more socially constructive goals. So like if you are a person who is well-respected and a typhoon comes along and wipes out your house, you're still going to be well-respected. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's really fascinating. It's also interesting how none of that has changed. No. And he, I love that he's like, some people have good luck. He really says that. Yeah. Some people have good luck. You could be famous or rich and bad luck and chance happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. He says, yet living a self-consciously ethical life is not for everyone. He divides humans aiming at a goal into three groups. Mm. One, people only interested in the type and the kind of um, 
goal, which comes from physical pleasure. And he compares such people with cattle. Okay. That's a weekly beef. (laughs) Two, people of action who spend their lives in the public or political sphere. Their goal is fame or honor, and they are keener on being recognized than they are actually being good people. Yeah. And three, people whose goal is to learn about the world and satisfy their minds. It's much more difficult for this goal to be sabotaged by factors beyond your control, like luck, and it doesn't require others to recognize or compliment you. It requires self-sufficiency, which leads to a happier life. Oh, man. Even the most self-sufficient among us has an enhanced life with friends. He's saying you can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. So I think he wouldn't appreciate self-help. I think he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. He says you don't need to be, quote, naturally talented at practicing a virtue and living well to become the best possible you. You must at all costs love yourself to live well and treat others fairly. Happiness is not compatible with self-loathing. Oh, my God. That's resonating so deeply for me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's like it. And it's what so many things say, like, you have to tend to yourself first, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. have to take care of yourself. You have to put on your own oxygen mask before you can do that of others. And I feel like you cannot have a deep and abiding hatred for yourself and truly find happiness, no matter what what um, fame, wealth, material things that you yeah. have, yeah. no matter how people respect you. Yes. If you do not have self-love, it doesn't matter. You cannot truly matter. find happiness. Oh, that's so sad. Isn't that interesting? Profound. Chapter two, potential. He comes up with this idea of potentiality. That's how she's describing it. And she's really good at um, breaking down the Greek words, the etymology, and like how we would refer to it today. He says, every object in the universe has a purpose for which it exists. Mm. Like this table that we have right here. Mm -hmm. It's inanimate, but it has a purpose. We set things on it. We use it. You know, uh, and that's it. That's its purpose. We tip it over in rage. Thank you. Living things have a different kind of potential, which is to develop into the mature version of whatever they are. A seed or acorn has the potential to develop into a plant or tree. A chicken egg, if fertilized, has the potential to develop into a hen or rooster. Mm -hmm. He eerily anticipated modern concepts of genetic encoding and DNA by talking about how a goat's horn is always going to be a goat's horn and it's for one thing for protecting the animal or for fighting which basically is like those cells in the horn are always going to grow into horn cells right does that oh yeah he was kind of like he was a little ahead of his time in that sense he was he seems like he was a little ahead of his time in every sense yeah he's really except for the slave thing sure um okay and on page 45 is this uh, longer quote which i wanted to read have you identified an actual? This is from the author. Have you identified and actualized your unique potential? Did you long to do something with your life and were never supported in developing a talent or natural proclivity? Did you want to be a painter, politician, or master chef? Aristotle didn't get really going, really get going until his fifties. His last ten years of his life is when he wrote most of his uh, uh, works. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. So you almost certainly still have time, but at any age, long-term thinking is essential. Happiness, in the Aristotelian sense, <laughs> I, I know I'm saying that wrong, means deciding what you want to do and why, and then implementing a plan to achieve it. He said about work that people who get pleasure from their work are almost always best at it. 
He said, only people who delight in geometry become proficient at it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And his concept of potentiality is forever locked into the Supreme Court of the United States vocabulary in the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, when in which they quote, the state has an important and legitimate interest in protecting the potentiality of human life from the 24th week of pregnancy. So here, the controversy over potentiality becomes the competing rights of a potential human and an actual pregnant one. So it's she's like, it's obvious that they were versed in this concept of potentiality and that they discussed it. Wow. So he's he's thousands of years later. It's current. Whoa. Man, I'm never going to be a writer like that. Well, you know, it's easy when you're first to market. Yeah. And you say it, you know, it's that's right. And you write it clearly and succinctly and you are and you're authentic and you know and you're not you're you're not doing anything to kind of hide and cloud it. It resonates. It does. And when you're a privileged white male who has slaves and women doing things for you, it makes it easy. Great. Chapter three, decisions. (laughs) I love this because he flat out says some people are lucky. Yeah. And I love that. Yes. Because then logically that means some people are unlucky. Yes. So this, this chapter I loved a lot. It was about deliberation. And so the Greeks talked a lot about deliberating. Um, did they deliberate about deliberating? <laughs> yes, they did. They Thank had long you. discussions about yeah, it. Yeah, really. So deliberation is a distinctive activity. He says we don't deliberate about laws of nature, like we don't deliberate about gravity. Right. We're like, here's the law of the universe, here's physics. We don't deliberate about proven facts, like if a loaf of bread is a loaf of bread. Mm. Although I was like, have you been on a Sunday morning pundit show? <laughs> it is only about uncertainties that we deliberate. Mm. We deliberate in order to act. And and he's like not and only about certain kind of uncertainties. We don't deliver. We don't deliberate about whether or not the weather will make it rain. Right. Like we can question it. We don't know if it's mm-hmm. going to rain, but we don't sit down and debate it. Right. <laughs> deliberate right. it. We're like, well, we'll see. Okay. That's right. We deliberate in order to act, and this is why deliberation is prominent in the spheres of politics and ethics, which are concerned with doing things. Yeah. So the bottom line: if you want to achieve happiness, you must take responsibility for your own actions and indeed failures to act. Wow. Hmm. So here are Aristotle's rules for deliberation: one. Don't deliberate in haste. Some people, he says, need more time and some need less time, but that doesn't make them better decision makers than Mm. the other. Some people, they both can come to great decisions. Right. Two, verify all information. Three, consult and listen to a disinterested expert advisor. Oh. Four, consult or at least look at the situation from the perspectives of all parties who will be affected. Five, Examine all known precedents, both those in your personal life and throughout history. Six, calibrate the likelihood of different outcomes and prepare for every single one you think is possible. Seven, think about the inconsiderate factor of luck. Factor in all the random possibilities you can possibly envisage. Some envisage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eight, um, most, and this one, she didn't specifically say eight, but I think since she says it, I think this is it. Most Greek discourse on deliberation includes the rule, don't drink and deliberate. Thank you. Although she does say that the Persians had um, a rule that they would get drink, get drunk and make a decision. And in the morning, if they still agreed with the decision, they would go with it. Wow. Yeah. Because they, like, it lowered inhibitions or... yeah. Yeah, but if wow. in the morning they were like, no, that's a terrible decision, then they knew. Um, the I author- wonder how many times they woke up and were like, no, nope, <laughs> yeah. no, I don't even right. think so. The author omits anachronistic rules 9 and 10. 9 is slaves can't deliberate. 
Ugh. And 10, women and deliberation don't mix. Aristotle sadly believed that the deliberation part of a woman's mind is inoperative or needs staring by a man. What? I mean, like, uh, I keep going back and forth with, and I'm not doing a very good job as your co-host today because I'm just listening really intently and <laughs> nodding at you and not being verbal. Uh, this is not a visual medium, people. I know that. You know that. We all know that. Um, but I keep being like, man, I love what he's saying. I love what he's saying. Oh, slaves. I love so, her saying, oh, I love, oh, here's what I do love that what she did is she said, listen, there are problems. And mm-hmm. also he said himself, all opinions deserve to be reconsidered. Right, right, right. And it sounds like she's doing a good job of what we do and going, where's the value? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and there is a lot of value in what he's saying. And she's not doing, which is my least favorite defense, the Game of Thrones defense. Well, it was that time. That's yeah. what they did at that time. Yeah, yeah. Look, it is what they did that time, but it does not make it okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Edith Hall. Thank you, Edith Hall. Edith. Chapter four, communication. Aristotle says rhetoric is a neutral skill which can be used for good or evil, and it's essential for any individual pursuing happiness. And I guess lawyers, he was the first person to really look at it this way that mm. it can, it's a neutral skill. Oh, not that it's like a positive, but that it can be used for evil. Well, sure, because you can convince anybody of anything with the right rhetoric. That's right. Now, here's something that she does throughout the book a couple times. She uses the entire chapter as an example with, like, applying for and interviewing for a job. Mm. And she uses his rules for rhetoric. And it works. Um, I'm not going to cover all of it. This this chapter was very, very dense, very cool. But I am going to um, talk about forms of argument, which I found very, very helpful. So this is on page 81. Here are several forms of arguments. So she says the simplest but most important forms of argument are simply statements or premises. From putting two statements together, we can deduce or infer a third statement, which constitutes a conclusion or a truth. This is similar to the rhetorical enthymeme. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. But called syllogism, which, which, which in Greek means just a process of putting arguments together. Okay. Do you remember sil- an example? Syllogy from your SAT, like if... With a colon, like if A colon B and then C colon, yes. right? Yeah. Syllogies, right? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yes. So here's a, here's a successful syllogism, right? Wouldn't you say S Y L L O G? Yeah. Yes. Syllogism. Premise number one: All philosophers are human. Premise number two: Aristotle is a philosopher. Conclusion: Therefore. Aristotle is a human. Got it. Mm -hmm. Aristotle was the first thinker to see that this could be written out in a universal form. All philosophers X are human Y. Aristotle Z is a philosopher X. Therefore, Aristotle Z is a human Y. It's kind of like the transitive. Did he just invent math? He didn't invent it, no. (laughs) It's kind of like the transitive property, right? If A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. Once he had defined the idea of a syllogism, he saw that now most syllogisms fell into certain categories, depending on the form taken by the premise and the modifying objectives. uh, Adjectives, excuse me. All philosophers or some philosophers, for example. A modifier could even be negative. No philosophers. For Aristotle realized that slightly more complicated syllogisms involve negative statements. Here you go. Premise number one. Aristotle and Theophorastus are not both at the Lyceum today. Lyceum? Yes. Sure. Premise number two. (laughs) Theophorastus is at the Lyceum today. Conclusion. Therefore, Aristotle is not at the Lyceum today. Okay, somebody. You can, you can hand me that law degree whenever you want. Here we go. If both premises are true, the conclusion is certain to be true. If the premises are correct, a valid and useful conclusion can be drawn. 
The devil with formal logic, however, is in the detail. By the age of seven, most children can spot a faulty, illogical conclusion, as in this. Premise number one, all Britons are human. Premise number two, some humans like bananas. Conclusion, therefore, all Britons like bananas. No. Right. So if only some humans like bananas, then we cannot assume that all Britons do. So the conclusion doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur. We would need more information to derive that conclusion. Yet it will take most children much longer to learn to question a premise that is presented to them. Here we go. Premise number one, Aristotle is a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Premise number two, all philosophers are pedants. Mm-hmm. Conclusion, therefore, Aristotle is a pedant. The first premise here is indisputable. Even the conclusion derives logically from the premises if you accept them. Ah. The problem lies in the second premise. Right. Experienced philosophers, politicians, and lawyers know well that the clever place to hide a logical problem or tendentious? How would you say that word? Girl, this is a textbook. A tendentious. Tenda, great. So experienced (laughs) philosophers, politicians, and lawyers know well that the clever place to hide a logical problem or tendentious viewpoint is in the second premise. Right. Because you're like, okay, I trust that the first one's true. Yes. The vulnerable point is always the middle of the syllogism because if the listener has accepted your first premise, they are put in the frame of mind which regards you as plausible and makes them more willing to accept your second. Yeah. Most arguments relying on racial or other discriminatory discriminatory prejudice housed on an incorrect statement, often a generalization in their second premise. Oh, my God. All Irish people are lazy. All redheads have a temper. No woman can park a car. I parked my car just a little while ago. So here's here's where she goes on. A colleague of mine, Susan, who is an archaeologist, was quarreling all the time with her husband, a philosopher. Like Spock in Star Trek, he could always pick holes in her conclusions and say she was illogical. Her deductions, she, he claimed, were all non sequiturs. But she didn't at the time realize that the place he was hiding his own logical problems, incorrect generalizations, was in the second premise. Mm. His premise number one, Susan is in psychotherapy. His premise number two, people go to psychotherapy because they are psychologically inadequate. Mm. His conclusion, therefore, Susan is psychologically inadequate. And no, I wrote, she's not. I wrote, get the fuck away from him, Susan. <laughs> Once Sue had read, marked, and inwardly digested all of Aristotle's work on logic via a competent uh, presses of them in a philosophical encyclopedia. Oh, my God. You see how I had trouble. What is this level of writing? Once Sue had understood what Aristotle was saying. Thank you. Her husband could no longer get away with that surreptitiously inserted false second premise. Yeah. She had previously. Carl or whatever his name is. She never names him. She had previously spent all her time trying to prove. She's previously spent all of her time trying to prove that she was an exception to his second premise instead of refuting it altogether. Mm. But she was able, via learning the rules of the logical premise, to restate his syllogism like this. Premise number one, Susan is in psychotherapy. Premise number two, by signing up for psychotherapy, people prove their psychological intelligence and adequacy. Conclusion, therefore, Susan is psychologically intelligent and adequate. And I wrote, still leave him, Susan. Still leave him. You don't need to prove anything to him. Just get the fuck out. Exactly. She wrote, the couple are still together and somewhat happier. No, no, Edith. (laughs) Somewhat. Um, Anyway. Somewhat. (laughs) So here are some some things that she gives that are... um, 
even more telling and I think is really cool. So she says, one example of the false premise was used by President George W. Bush when arguing for the introduction of educational reforms, which dramatically increased the role of testing in grades three through eight under the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, Mm. which we all know now is not helpful, was not helpful. He stated, premise number one, children are failing too often in basic literary and numeracy in schools. Premise number two, everybody opposed to dramatically increased testing has no interest in holding schools accountable for their failures in teaching literacy and numeracy. Conclusion, only dramatically increased testing will improve literacy and numeracy in schools. Mm. The first premise expressed a truth and one which was widely accepted. But the second premise was not true. Mm -hmm. Bush's opponents were indeed extremely interested in making schools more accountable for their performances and had developed several different proposals for reforms, but they did not include increased testing. This meant the conclusion that Bush Bush had drawn was false. He had not for one minute proved that the only way to improve literacy and numeracy was by increased testing. Yeah. He frequently used such misinterpretation of the opposition's views in his second premise in putting the case for his proposals to the public. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm seeing the Matrix. Yeah, right? Yeah. Or take the false syllogism on which support for the 2003 invasion of Iraq was raised both by President Bush and Tony Blair. And those Bushes. President number one. uh, Premise number one. (laughs) (laughs) Intelligence reports tell us that Iraq holds weapons of mass destruction. Okay. Premise number two. We would not lie to you, distort, or exaggerate evidence. Ah. Conclusion. Therefore, we must invade Iraq and disarm disarm Saddam Hussein. Emotive language was used to draw attention away from the fuzzy glossing over the details of the evidence in premise one and the appeal to their own moral integrity in premise two. Blair insisted that Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program was active, detailed, and growing, while Bush said that the invasion was necessary before Saddam threatened civilization. Many other tragic historical events have been caused by failure of voters to see the invalidity of a logical syllogism. Oh, my God. The rest of the chapter is about giving uh, communication either in speech, lecture, email, letter, et cetera. It's very informative. It's super great. But how, how did you feel this was this was helping you? I can see how the syllogisms and seeing through like false logic is very helpful. Mm-hmm. But like this communication chapter, mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to make you better at like a job well, or... Yeah, the, I mean, the rest of the chapter, I, I just love that because I'm like, oh, that's relevant today. So relevant. My God. And when I'm listening to... It's going to be mean, real have, relevant in 2020. That's what I'm saying. We yep. have an election coming up. Yeah. And when I listen to a candidate offering up these, I'll more quickly be able to see their weak second premise. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to challenge them on that. I want to be able to go to a town hall or a meeting or submit a question and say like, or or influence my friends and family by saying, look, that second premise is not true. Yeah. You know, and the way they're stating that is not true. So great to have the framework and vocabulary for that. Yeah. The rest of the chapter is fucking great, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> he this has ABC's so ABC of effective communication, according to Aristotle, is audience, brevity, and clarity. And he's not wrong. Thank you. So those are the ones that I'm covering. I'm just going to give you a quick one-line summary of, of the, the rest of the, the chapters. chapters. Thank They're you. They're so good. There's so much in it. I can't recommend it enough. I am what I like to call world history stupid. I never took a world history class um, outside of, like, formal education. Uh-huh. Um, I... I don't know anything about world history mm-hmm. or world geography. I only know about a place once I've been to it. So Fair. it's you know, it's a it's good that I'm well traveled. But I know nothing about ancient civilization. I know nothing about world history. I don't history. know enough about it. I feel like I've only like touched it. You know what I mean? Glossed over it like a like a day or two in class and moving on. I don't even touch it. Yeah. Like it's never too late. When I learned that the Greeks invented 
um, uh, uh, Latin and then Greek, I'm like, what? Right. I don't know that kind of yeah, shit. Who, so I mean, she yeah. brings up a lot of a lot of information, a lot of history. And so That's if you're into awesome. that. So you get the context. You'll love it. Oh, I am so into that. I would have majored it. in history if I knew that it didn't matter what I majored in. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and what did you major in? Uh, Please I say have, communication. Nope. I have an interdisciplinary studies degree. So I was a pre-med science <laughs> and a double major in theater for a long time. And uh, I love that you said it. I wanted to make sure that my my major mattered. I have an interdisciplinary degree. No, no, no. I'm I'm laughing because it's so. What does it even mean? Yes. So basically, pre-med theater. I, so I was pre-med science and a double major in theater for a long time, and I didn't want to be in college forever. So they, I could fit all of my credits into this interdisciplinary sure, studies sure, degree sure, sure. where you picked two concentrations in a minor. Uh-huh. So one of my concentrations is physical sciences, which is where all that organic chemistry and genetics and biology fits into. And then humanities is my other one. And then I have a minor in theater and a minor in women's studies. So here's my ideal job for you. <laughs> you are a traveling child um, uh, like a school performance thing and you're dressed up as like a kidney bean and you're explaining the functions to them. It's like you peered into the depths of my soul <laughs> and then wrote that job description. And I get paid $300,000 a year. Thank you. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. It's a nice costume. It's a good looking kidney bean. <laughs> cool. That's okay. still not going to be your salary. <laughs> cool. <laughs> chapter five is self-knowledge. Um, this chapter talks about virtues and vices which he spends a lot of time on. I um, bet he does. What does can you re- recall off the top of your head like a virtue and a vice? I sure can. But basically no 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 virtue is independent. So like you can have deficiency or excessiveness. So like mm. um uh so like respectfulness, self-control, generosity are all virtues mm-hmm. and there are also some vices. So like here we go. Um an appropriate level is respectfulness. Deficiency is shyness, and excessive is insolence. Ah. Appropriate level is generosity. Deficiency is meanness, and excessive is financial wastefulness. Yeah. Right? Appropriate is friendliness. Deficient is antagonism, and excessive is fawning behavior. Man, do you think this just blew people's minds when he was publishing this stuff? No, because I think he was just saying, I don't think he invented this. Ah. I think he just wrote it succinctly. Great. You know, like um, dignity is appropriate, frugality is um, deficient, and extravagance is uh, excessive. Man, Ramit Sethi and Dave Ramsey, they're not holding up in Aristotle's eyes. So that's a lot about um, virtues and vices. Mm -hmm. It's worth a read for sure. Great. Chapter six is intentions. And this is taking... um, taking it further with acting or not acting on intentions and the like. Mm. And Aristotle thought that every person should be judged on their intentions. But it's like... really. You, you, but what, what does it matter in the end? I didn't... I didn't mean to kill him. I just wanted to squeeze his neck for a while. Like, Well, he also, like, is very... I mean, the Greeks were very deliberate, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, listen, if you, if you strike a blow on someone and it was for their pleasure, then are you... Then are you to blame? No. Right. Right. So everything has a caveat. Yeah. Right. Really consider all of the implications. Yeah. Um, Chapter seven is about love. He says that happiness is always dependent on personal relationships, and he regarded love as essential to human life. Mm -hmm. Chapter eight is community. And he says the effective creation of happiness cannot be done alone. 
He spends time talking about different types of constitutions in Greece at the time. There were tyrannies, monarchies, democracies, and aristocracies. He's harshest on tyrannies, saying that they discourage any activities among citizens that foster self-esteem and self-confidence. Chapter 9 is leisure. He says that leisure is more important than work and people can misuse it if they are not educated in constructive pastimes. If rightly used, leisure is the ideal human state. So I'm going to read what? you this little. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Open to the right page. Can you believe it? I love it. <laughs> A few people are fortunate enough to do what they like to do best, fulfill their unique potential and get paid for it. Uh, they earn a living by doing what they would choose to do anyway if they had a private income and round the clock leisure. But financial necessity means that most people spend a good deal of their work lives wishing they were not at work. For Aristotle, work and recovery from work are never ends in themselves. They are merely the means to further leisure activity in which our full potential for happiness can be realized. As a civilization, we are obsessed with work. His privileging of planned and constructive leisure over work or simple relaxation runs counter to our idea that we are defined by our jobs and professions. When we ask someone what they, quote, do, we mean what do they do to make a living? Not Mm -hmm. whether they spend their leisure hours singing in a choir or visiting medieval castles. The very idea of having enough leisure to worry about how to use it well would prompt scornful laughter from many working people who believe that it is that sort of problem on which time is wasted by airy-fairy ivory tower intellectuals far removed from the pragmatic reality of everyday life. (laughs) Yet it is only in our leisure hours that Aristotle believes our full human potential can be realized. The objective of work is usually to sustain our lives biologically, an objective we share with other animals. But the objective of leisure can and should be to sustain other aspects of our lives which make us uniquely human, our souls, our minds, our personal and civic relationships. Leisure is therefore wasted if we do not use it purposefully. Purposefully. Yep. Yep. That's so beautiful. I mean, that word looks at me like porpoise lively, but that's porpoise not lively. what it is. That's he my says, celebrity She says he name. would have been repelled by the modern concept of the work ethic by Max, Max Weber. I bet he would. The I Protestant bet. ethic and the spirit of capitalism. He would have been repulsed by it. I bet. I wonder how he would feel about us all watching TV so much. Unless it was teaching us Greek, he yeah. probably would hate it. Um, and then chapter 10 is on morality and... or. Not morality, mortality. Excuse me. (laughs) At least you're doing a great job. Basically, if you live well, you can die well. Great. Kind of just like at first glance, it seems like if you live really well, you'll have a lot to leave. And that's not what he's saying. If you live a life full of virtue and have a life full of happiness, it'll be easier to let go, I think, in the end. Right. Kind of like, all right, (sighs) we did it. We did it. Aristotle's you okay? Way. Thank you so much for being so succinct with that because just the time you spent on chapter four was like we could have done a whole episode on it. Well, I really liked that chapter, and I yeah. mean, I didn't even get into he has things right. about communicating that I teach right when I talk about um, presentation giving and like right. Uh, he's not wrong. He's not wrong, except for the slave he's and the really women thing. He's really wrong, but his his. Clarity and brevity of ideas that have lasted thousands of years. Yeah. And he is not wrong. Very succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, what did he get right? What did I'm sorry, what did the author get right? Edith. Edith Hall. Edith Hall. Tell us. Aside from being very, very educated at Oxford, um, she's, you know, she does a good job of explaining how she 
intuits and interprets his thoughts, yeah. right? So it's like from this work, from this piece where he says this and he used this word, which the etymology is, etymology is this, we can derive this. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt her for a second. Right. And what did she get wrong? I mean, it's not a self-help book. It's kind of like these are his tenets. And if you want to read a textbook, a college-level textbook on why it's so it's so interesting because if she just if somebody did a pass to make this a little more like layman's terms or just take out words like evanes and you know it's very yeah I'm but sitting here actively I've, trying to I've interpret I've seen this um to to me marketed to me on Amazon in the self help mm-hmm. section my mom saw it. And sent it to me because it was pr- promoted as self-help. Right. But and it real- is. Because think about it, so many health self-help books are like, how to be happy. How are you happy? How can you find well, happiness? Well, Andy's saying, like, here's how to best live your life. Yeah. And here's how to communicate better. Yeah. And it is. I, I mean, I, I would push back and say it does feel like self-help or life advice. It's just not in the it's format that we're used to. Yeah. It's not It doesn't feel accessible. Like, I don't I don't know how, like, a teen is ever supposed to read this and get anything out oh, of it. Oh, well, they would need to write Aristotle's Way for the teen soul, like chicken soup for the yeah, teen yeah, soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and did you put anything from this book into practice? Um, what did I put into practice? I Definitely from the first four chapters because the rest I just, I got so crazy. Um... You know, I think what I put into practice was I was just so grateful and to just start taking into consideration luck. Yeah. And not to have that, you know, we recently reviewed The Secret where there is no such thing as luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I love that he's like, some people have luck. Yeah. And some people have bad luck. And do you find that that helps you in successes or failures or seeing other people's successes or failures? Well, it takes away some of the victim blaming. It yeah. takes away some of this, it's like— It's all in your power. It's all so in my power. Yeah, and if yeah, I'm yeah. thinking with the wrong thoughts, you know, and this, yeah. this this isn't about thinking thoughts. Yes, there's intentions, but it requires action. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to actively work towards happiness. So who is this perfect for? This book is perfect for a professor friend who mm. who is like, so you're reading self-help, huh? <laughs> Give him this book and be like, your buddy Aristotle was any, the king of anybody self-help. Anybody who wants to pull one over on their bougie professor, this book is for you. Yeah, I mean, also I think if you are or have an erudite friend who's really like woo-woo is uncomfortable, this is so Practical Patty. It's ah, practical Pythagorean. Like I keep thank Pythagoras. You. I thank can't. You. I can't even. It's so. It's so. Textbook. It's yeah. just a textbook. It's it's ancient history. <laughs> ancient history. Greek philosophers. If people like history. Then yeah. They're gonna love this. Great. <clears throat> and you know she references so many Greek classics and so many different. You know, Shakespeare things, too, like how that came. Because a lot of Shakespeare is based off of Greek classics. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, like, it's just so fascinating. And I know none of that stuff because I'm yeah. Big Ten educated. Yeah, so. same. Same. Absolutely same. And do you have a listener challenge for me? You know that I do. Um, <laughs> I'm going to send you Aristotle's Rules for Deliberation. In fact, I'm going to loan you the book. Oh. And if you have a decision that you need to make, large or small, you can use these rules for deliberation this week. Uh, all the color just drained from my face. I can feel it. It can truly be about what to order for lunch. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
which is great. And uh, <laughs> and I'm going to exempt you from the anachronistic rule of that your brain needs male help to make a deliberation. Oh, thank you for exempting me. Because yeah. otherwise, how could I even open the book or read the book? It's just touch the book. It's just It'll seven, burn my little hands. It's just seven things. Don't deliberate in haste. Verify all information. Consult and listen to a disinterested expert advisor. <laughs> Consult or at least look at the situation from all the perspective of all parties who will be affected. Examine all known precedents, both those in your personal life and history. Calibrate the likelihood of different outcomes. Consider think about the inconsiderate factor of luck, and that's it. I was just thinking how complicated that would be for a lunch order. Well, call a disinterested party. What do you that's think? Why the Greeks loved to deliberate. Oh my God, they love they to spend time done? really coming to a decision. Yeah, right. All the maybe, men. Maybe you have like, um, if you're thinking about getting a car, or maybe you're thinking <laughs> about like a new piece of furniture mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. We already know my strategy brain reads every review on Amazon. Well, that's why I think you and I would really enjoy this. Okay. Because when we finally come to the decision, we know that we have done yeah, all of the research. We feel needed. good about it. Or if you're me, you go into a deep dark vortex of buyer's regret, no matter what. But this should help us. Okay. Avoid that. Okay. Okay, that's my plan. Thank you so much, Lisa. That was so um, wonderful and informative. And I'm exhausted. Thank you, Aristotle. Isn't that just kind of amazing to think that like 2,300 years ago he was writing this? That's so insane. And to think that like— And not on a laptop. And someday (laughs) this world is just going to explode and light on fire, and no one will ever know that any of us existed. So that's really cool. Also, he did write a lot of stuff about comedy, but it's not survived. It's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's not survived probably because— it, 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 monks were recreating. And they're not funny. Well, but they only had so much labor, so they probably chose text, other texts that were more important than they figured on comedy. So I, I'm that sad. I would have sucks. loved to have known what his thoughts were oh, on comedy. Oh, somebody's got to have something. No. No. Because before there was the printing press, it was it was monks and monasteries who mm-hmm. hand wrote every And they text. would just leave things out that they disagreed with, which is why everybody, you have to be so critical when you're reading things that you're like, no, this is the rule. This is the law. This is the Bible. Maybe it's not. Yeah. And with that, we'll just say, life is abundant. (laughs) Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. (laughs) Do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at GHYpodcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye!